Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Frank Capello. And I'm Rithka Rivera. So, um, we gotta talk about it. It is the Bradley Cooper biopic of Leonard Bernstein, Maestro. Wow, starting off real hot. <laughs> and the um, photos came out. I was already aware that this movie was coming out and that um, Leonard Bernstein, a famous Jewish man, was being played by Bradley Cooper, a famous non-Jewish man. This already had, um, I had a lot of feelings and emotions about it. I know that there was a lot of people who were already upset on that premise alone because historically, Jewish roles are not often played by Jewish actors. And that's not because there's like, oops, accidental, or oops, we're going to pretend that there's not also like, that we don't have deep anti-Semitic roots in this country. So, for example, I guess most currently, most famously, we have Miss Maisel, played by a non-Jewish actress. The list goes on and on. Friends, we had two Jewish actors, but... Rachel Green was clearly a Jewish character played by a very non-Jewish woman. And historically, in this industry, if you are a Jewish person, you have been told not to look too Jewish or act too Jewish if you go out for Jewish roles. So there's there's this context as well. I don't I'm not someone who necessarily feels like you have to be the identity that you're going to play in like the full scope of art. I'm not, I don't hold those rules fast. However, when you are playing underrepresented identities that have very specific, a very specific cultural inheritance and a very specific um, nuances and complexities, you have this history of not being able, not being represented by the people who have those experiences, then yeah, it is important. And yeah, it becomes painful the more you see non-Jewish actors playing Jewish roles. Um, and so that was already the context for knowing that Bradley Cooper was playing this really important Jewish man who there's also just what Leonard Bernstein means to um, our history, uh, our history and entertainment to this era that his music came out it's inherently going to be a political film in that sense so then the trailer comes out and to make matters worse they have put a giant prosthetic nose onto this man to make him quote-unquote look more like leonard bernstein so the well, i mean and to be clear yeah. he has put it on himself since he <laughs> is also the director yeah. of this film so this director, wasn't someone else producer being like writer yeah, so this wasn't someone being like, Bradley, we love you, baby, but if you're going to do this role, you got to wear the nose. Like, this was this was Bradley Cooper's choice um, as the director of this film. And there's a really interesting intersection of, with capitalism here, um, but what I want to get back to. But if you immediately, the upset is, I mean, I guess most people, including myself, look at these photos and say, like, that was completely unnecessary. That nose is... <laughs> Much bigger than Leonard Bernstein's nose even appears to be in old photos. It's not accurate. It's not good. It's not good prosthetics to begin with. It's totally unfucking necessary. And it's Jew face. And I know, and I want to talk about this concept of Jew face, of just what it means to extend 
um, his nose like this and use this stereotype that basically I don't know if they if he thought oh we wouldn't know that he was playing Leonard Bernstein in um, <laughs> if we wouldn't accept it without the nose even though it makes him look less like Ber Leonard Bernstein in my opinion but that we have this really very real painful history attached to this stereotype where Jews in films which we've come across remember our Newsies episode I mean we've come across this stereotype many times where Jews are greedy um, oh, yeah. Mr. money grubbing Weasel. Mr. Weas Weasley beady eyed lascivious devious malevolent horrible conspiratorial humans and that stereotype always comes along with a grotesque large nose so this prosthetic nose on a Jewish stereotype is nothing new but it is very very painful and so I think for anyone who doesn't understand why there is this outrage the people are calling Jew face of like, what's the big deal? Jews have big noses. I don't understand the big deal. This is why. Yes, especially with that context that this is something that has been done to Jewish actors and Jewish characters throughout history, specific and in like and in cartoons and in artwork and in film and television. This kind of caricaturing um, occupies the same space as blackface does, and obviously. Obviously, they're two totally different uh, cultural caricatures that are, you know, that are meant to oppress and have different uh, cultural baggage and histories. But it's they're, they're in the same realm. So it's wild mm -hmm. to me that no one on this production was like, um, hey, Bradley, maybe uh, maybe we don't do this. Maybe this is historically offensive. And anybody with like access to Wikipedia can find out how offensive this will be to people. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's important to note that Bernstein's children did come out um, and and defended the film. They also helped. They were a big part of, um, I think, the making of the film in some way. I'm not sure exactly. But they said it happens to be true that Leonard Bernstein had a nice big nose. Bradley chose to use makeup to amplify his resemblance, and we're perfectly fine with that. We're also certain our dad would be fine with that as well. And that's totally okay. Like, I, I also hear that, and I don't think – I think you can be okay with it. I do think it's important under, to understand it's a decision like this, a film this big, and its place in history. That, like, just because the children say, well, it's okay with us, it should be okay with you, again – you're bringing up the trauma of centuries of using this painful stereotype. There's violence attached to this, right? Like this is, this is an, I get so, I guess I'm having trouble talking about it because it's something that's so in my, in my DNA being Jewish, just something that's so part of our collective inherited trauma as well. When mm -hmm. you do know there's like parts of this. I mean, I remember being in college and meeting people who'd never met a Jewish person before and truly like their stereotypes that they understood Jews to be were big nose and horns. And obviously, the point is that not all Jewish people necessarily have the same physical traits. But when you take one physical stereotype to define a whole people intentionally so to demonize them, to make them less than human so that you can mm -hmm. cause harm to a whole people, that is where that is sort of like what this is poking at. And when that person doing that, making that choice is not Jewish, it's a, it's especially painful. And beyond that, like I said, like, okay, Hollywood is this place where maybe Jews have a lot of, have a lot to do with the creation, have a lot to do with its history, but you're never allowed to, quote unquote, again, look Jewish or be Jewish. I mean, Jewish actresses who've had to get heard the story of a Jewish actress who had to get a nose job and then got cast as a Jewish character. And then they were all wondering why she, quote unquote, didn't look Jewish. It's just one of these. 
any stereotype like this is like something that it's a catch-22 and it's full of so much pain. So that's why this conversation is happening. That's why this is important. It also makes me think about this intersection of capitalism. Do you remember when um, Zoe Saldana did the Nina Simone biopic? Uh, Vaguely. And she used prosthetics and there was a big conversation about that because she used prosthetics to um, change her nose and make herself look like Nina Simone and darken her skin. And the conversation, again, was about why would you not just get the actor who could carry those traits within them? And, I, and mm. like, the answer here is, and the same with Bradley Cooper, because he's a big fucking star. And they're depending on a box office to make this film a hit. And, they're, and they want this film to, I'm sorry, they, part of the unspoken conversation is they want it to read across the globe. So maybe, you know... Big nose that make sure they know he's Jewish, right? Like, that's part of it. They're using these stereotypes, sure. maybe not even understanding what they're doing. But, like, when you are under this capitalist system and box office and quote-unquote market dominates, you that's what you're thinking about. You're just thinking about how much money you can make. So they're not going to cast a Jewish actor. They're going to cast a Bradley Cooper. And I think there was – I even read – so or my friend had said something about how Jake Gyllenhaal, I think – was going to do and Jake Gyllenhaal is Jewish had been going after this and Jake Gyllenhaal is also famous but not as famous as Bradley Cooper at the moment and um he was going to make this film and had to let it go because Bradley Cooper jumped in and <laughs> decided to make Bradley Cooper's film again Bradley Cooper's not fucking Jewish I do I was I think I've been talking about this and trying to really be like not emotional but fuck it I'm pretty emotional about it it's really upsetting I fucking hate yeah. it I hate that Miss Maisel's not Jewish. She does a great job. But I also know actors who went out for that role and were literally told, you're too Jewish to play this part. And that's about market. That's about fear that an audience will be repulsed by someone who's quote unquote too Jewish playing a Jewish role. I'm sorry. That's incredibly frustrating and upsetting. And uh, thank you. And so th and thank you for sharing all of that uh, with me and our audience. I think that's important. Uh, the one other thing we wanted to mention real fast here, because we've been talking about it um, on this show, uh, a quick update on the WGA and SAG strikes. So mm. um, one big update is that the WGA and the AMPTP, the producers, um, have resumed negotiations slowly but surely. I think they've had a few meetings. So they are back in the rooms. The writers and the producers are talking with one another. Another pretty big development, SAG sent out an email last week with updated information about their interim agreements. Mm -hmm. And the interim agreements are something that we've talked about. Uh, basically, when SAG went on strike, they were allowing some independent productions to continue being in production. So these were smaller productions that were outside of the purview of the AMPTP, which is all like the big producers. And so they were basically saying like, okay, if you're like a smaller independent production... And if your production company or whatever meets our terms, then you can continue your production. And so there was a there was a little bit of like I think consternation from some rank and file actors and writers just because you know these were productions that had big stars in them still. You know these were like uh, it was like productions with like Mark Wahlberg and other, so they might be independent, but they were still going on. So there was and we talked about it this question. Of I like, certainly had some feelings, if you all recall. <laughs> As you all recall, <laughs> but yeah, if like a strike is going on and there are still productions happening, then it's it's confusing and it's not a clear strategy. And, you know, you know the the public is going to see some people still working and some people not. And it's not clear mm -hmm. why. And so 
the SAG sent this email, and basically what they did was they 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 tightened the terms of their interim agreement to also cover what the WGA is demanding. So I'm just going to read uh, verbatim from the email. Our staff and attorneys have been actively discussing with the WGA how we can make sure our interim agreement strategy supports their strike strategy, which does not presently include the offer of any interim agreements. After several productive and collaborative meetings... We have approved a modification to our interim agreement policy. We will now exclude from interim agreements any WGA-covered project to be produced in the USA. We have been advised by the WGA that this modification will assist them in executing their strike strategy, and we believe it does not undermine the utility and effectiveness of ours. So this basically just tightened the conditions that this interim agreement can be met. So like any, any WGA project regardless of its size, is now also shut down. So now the only things this interim agreement covers are, quote-unquote, truly independent projects that are not covered by either the WGA or SAG, which is like, if you know anything about Hollywood TV production, that means, like, that's just, like, you and your friends making stuff. Like, that's... So, like, you and your friends can still make stuff, like, on the side, but, like, any actual union production is not going to happen anymore with this updated interim agreement. And... I think it's great. This is great. This is what we were talking about. This was clearly like yeah. enough people had had chirped in the SAG leadership's ear and were like, hey, yo, this you got a lot of people still fucking working in the middle of a strike. And like also like these WGA people aren't getting covered by your interim agreements. So and Viola Davis, I do think she made I just just guessing that that was like a big deal. Yeah, Viola Davis was working on one of these uh, interim agreement productions and which had the the clearance from SAG to continue working. And Viola Davis was like, no, I am not going to work. Well, made a point of saying, you know, there are other people doing this, but this is not essentially like Mm -hmm. that's not what solidarity looks like. I want to do my film, but that's just it. This is a strike. A strike is a strike. A strike is a strike. A strike is a strike. So this is this is great. This is this is basically addressing everything that we were talking about. So now this will pretty much shut down, I think, everything. Yeah, I think these are all really great things that are happening. Except except for the Bradley Cooper stuff. That's not great. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, no, but the this solidarity is great and we love to see it. So mm. we have um, a really wonderful conversation coming up for you. So but before we get to talking about the Titanic. Just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. Yes, we perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we are trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we don't sell ads on this show. Instead, we rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you will be directly supporting this show. You could also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast app. It takes two seconds, and it's super helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, and we really appreciate it. All right, we are going to take a break, but we will be right back with our conversation on Titanic with Dr. Erica Okamoto. We are so thrilled today to be joined by uh, Dr. Erica Okamoto. Erica is the host of the Cocktails and Capitalism podcast, 
which pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. She has interviewed <laughs> labor and environmental justice leaders like Chris Smalls and Steven Donziger, as well as activists from Climate Defiance, Food Not Bombs, and the movement to Stop Cop City. Her anti-capitalist project is informed by her studies of political theory and philosophy, as well as her experience using direct action to disrupt the University of California's management of the two nuclear weapons design facilities in the U.S. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, Erica... <laughs> Dr. Erica, thank you so much for joining us on Movies vs. Capitalism. So excited to be here. This is definitely my kind of thing, my kind of jam right now. <laughs> so. Yeah, I would uh, I would hope that this is uh, intersectionally something you would be interested <laughs> in. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. So, Erica, your podcast, as I mentioned, pairs cocktails and stories about capitalism and, and interviews. You're actually drinking a cocktail right now, so... <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your cocktail and tell us a little about the work that you do on your podcast. Yeah, of course. Um, so when I thought about doing the movie, talking about the movie Titanic with you folks, I was like, okay, well, you know, there's probably a cocktail that I can tie into this. And there was immediately when I searched, there was like the cocktail that they drank the most on the Titanic, which was the Punch Romaine. And it's like uh, lemon, orange juice, champagne, white rum or clear rum, white wine, uh, egg white, and like uh, an orange twist. And it is really, really delightful. It's like kind of a, a variation on the mimosa. It's just kind of like a more complicated mimosa. <laughs> Looks gorgeous. I didn't have the uh, ingredients on hand, but I'm definitely going to uh, throw that at a bartender at some point. And nice. be like, yeah. what is that? I've never heard yeah. of that before. They're going to be mad at you. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, Eric, it's great to have you on. We're big fans of your work and the podcast. And this is, as we discussed, this is such a big film that we chose and we're very excited to oh dive God, in yeah. so i think we should jump right in um for yeah. anyone who has not uh revisited this classic we are talking about titanic written and directed by james cameron starring kate winslet leonardo dicaprio billy zane kathy bates bill paxton francis fisher and gloria stort the budget for this film was 200 million and it made, it has made, 2.264 billion worldwide. Billion dollars. Insane. For the long, for was the, it was the highest grossing film of all time until James Cameron made Avatar. Did it That's, again. Yep. <laughs> wow. Billion oh, dollar Cameron. At the unobtainium. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> such a ridiculous name for the 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 whatever the mi mineral that they're trying to mine it's one of my favorite Metal. details from that movie yeah. like well, it's a mineral it's a, it's it's unobtainable what should we call it uh, <laughs> another silly. pod another pod yeah so in the titanic when treasure hunter brock lovett played by paxton searches the wreckage of the titanic for a priceless diamond necklace known as the heart of the ocean he finds a clue which leads him to Rose Calvert, a 101-year-old survivor of the sinking of the Titanic. Rose then regales Brock and his team of the story of her journey on the ship. Told entirely in flashback, the aristocratic 17-year-old Rose, played by Kate Winslet, boards the Titanic with her mother and the abusive rich boy fiancé, played by Zane. But Rose's life is forever changed when she meets the charming yet poor artist Jack Dawson, played by... Leonardo DiCaprio. And they begin a star-crossed love affair, which ends, spoiler alert, in tragedy when the Titanic crashes into that fateful iceberg. 
Yeah, sorry. If you do not know the ending to this film, that, that's that is fully on you for yeah. not having seen it and for listening to this podcast. Like that's yeah. you made the choice. Erica, a little bit of historical context for when this film was released. It was released on December 19th, 1997. Bill Clinton has just begun his second term as president. In February, a Santa Monica jury finds O.J. Simpson civilly liable for the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. In June, during a boxing match in Las Vegas, Mike Tyson bites off part of Evander Holyfield's ear. In September, the URL www.google.com is registered by Google. Wow. So that's a little bit of 1997. Thank you. That's fascinating. Should I talk a little bit about, like, what I was doing at the time? Yeah. I mean, if you really want to, I like I don't have I was nine years old. I didn't I wasn't really doing much. Yeah, I was pretty young, too. I think I was in like third grade at the time. No, no, I was about sixth grade at the time. And I uh, I was living in Jakarta in Indonesia and I saw it in a little rundown movie theater that was just kind of, you know, you go and the whole thing is just kind of tattered and everything because you're in this developing country, this global South country that is really, really underdeveloped. And yeah, it was just so magnificent, like seeing it on the big screen. Even as a child, I was crying. I cried so much in that film. It it was so moving. I mean, I, I knew basically like, okay, there's forbidden love between the classes here going on, but I did not see the the whole class picture that was there like watching it again blew my mind because i was like Mm. every fucking thing in this movie except for the iceberg is about class Mm -hmm. everything else (laughs) and maybe even potentially the iceberg and And we can get into the iceberg yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. totally that's so wild so i'm curious like you're in jakarta at this age and did you have any idea of how much of like a truly global phenomenon this movie was like like in Jakarta like did you understand that like how big this movie and it's and how much money it was making was or was this just sort of like you were there and you're like oh I'll see this movie um I think I I understood the the kind of cultural significance I mean Mm -hmm. you know American culture American films there they were the main thing that you'd go and see in the theaters over there there weren't that many local Indonesian films that you would go see so yeah, it was a huge, huge deal. And I understood that like, this is much bigger than any of the other movies I'd probably seen at that point. Uh, I mean, maybe Jurassic Park. But mm. yeah, I mean, the budget and everything, the, the sheer size of the model ship that they built, um, you know, it was almost the same size as the Titanic that they built to film this movie. Just yeah. mind blowing scale in, on, in every aspect of this film. Yes, and the fact that they actually went and for a dive to get all that real footage, like it was mm-hmm. a, it was more than a movie. It was truly a moment. Before there was Barbenheimer, there was the Titanic. <laughs> I mean, totally. it was epic. That is really, really fascinating to hear about where you were and how you took this film when it first came in because I was over here in Brooklyn, my walls plastered with Leonardo DiCaprio's face, <laughs> probably like in in prep like I, yeah I, probably I guess like I think I, I'm trying to think what I would have been a fan of before Titanic but I definitely was because I remember going to the theater with homemade earrings with my guy on my ears 
um, ready to go. <laughs> I love wow. it. Wow. Like, I'm telling you. Like, like computer printouts, like, attached to oh some hooks? God. Is that basically what you were writing? Lamin lam attached to some hooks. They were laminated. I was selling these. Oh like, I was capitalizing <laughs> off of Titanic in my own way. I had my shop going. I was. Oh my gosh! I yeah. Um, we've talked about this before. Rivka was a little capitalist when she was growing up. She I was, was like, <laughs> I want to start a business. Oh, I wrote Oprah. Amazing. Like I remember sitting at my iMac writing what? Oprah Winfrey at least ten times in different capacities, oh <laughs> pitching my idea that I should be on the show and Leonardo DiCaprio should oh come gosh. on and surprise me. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that. And it was like, Your the comment is was... so surprised, Oprah. I promise. I will be like, they will love it. You will make this girl's dreams come true. So that Your was... audience will love this. Yeah. <laughs> so that was for. my, like, that oh was God. my entry point. So clear. And I remember seeing it at the Pavilion Movie Theater in um, Windsor Terrace and getting ready and thankfully my mom like i think you know it was a, just that big moment of like i'm gonna see like this moment for three hours and like i don't know what kind of kissing i'm gonna see or more it was very exciting <laughs> that being said like it was devastating like what a devastating mm -hmm. film and i i think like i was i think you can't i think i was like, clearly aware of the like you're aware of the tragedy the class it's so there's no way to be subtle with something, you know, and be anywhere near historically accurate with this about just like the mm -hmm. the disparities and the tragedy and that you're just like, especially what I love about thinking about movies like this that I saw as a kid, you're so connected to that. Like, it's not fair. It's such a visceral mm -hmm. reaction. So it's just yeah. so outrageous. And there's no sort of rational, like there's none of that bullshit rational political filtering yet where you'd be like, yes, mm -hmm. but... I mean, you have to see it from they from the perspective <laughs> of the upper boy. I don't even know what the justice. They just they didn't know. You know, maybe they actually really would have been more comfortable on those lifeboats if there was just some more room. Yeah. I don't know whatever that rationalization would be. <laughs> Imagine how the owners of the cruise line felt. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Exactly. Like, Lost as their a, investment. You're not buying that fucking shit as a kid. You're like, this is so fucked up. This is tragedy. I mm -hmm. never let go, Jack. Never <laughs> let go. Frank, where <laughs> on the planet were you? Like I mentioned, I was uh, nine years old. I did not see this movie in theaters. <gasps> I knew that it was happening. I knew that it was happening. I knew that it was you a big deal. I, 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 I super blew it. I didn't care. I honestly didn't care. I was like a little boy. Yes. <laughs> not that little boys can't love James Cameron's Titanic, but um, <laughs> honestly, and like full... Full transparency for you both and for our audience. The only reason I wanted to watch this movie when it came out on VHS is because I heard that there were boobs in it. That was it. <laughs> I that knew you were going to say that. Higher <laughs> impetus to see this movie. I watched it all the way through. I was like, all right, I, I can't miss them, so I guess I have to watch this whole movie. <laughs> three um, hours. Yeah. And <laughs> three hours. And you know what? Worth it. For boobs. Um, yep. <laughs> but were the boobs I, on the honestly, first I, VHS or the second? Honestly, I don't if remember. I think it might have been right at the end of the first. Oh if they were smart, they would have put it in a second. <laughs> but I do remember seeing, I remember specifically, like so viscerally, the moment where they lock all of the uh, lower class passengers behind the gate as the ship is sinking. And I remember seeing that as a child. And that was probably one of the first times I was introduced to 
class disparities in a like in a real visceral way where I was like, yeah. I, I, I must have been 10 years old. And I remember, you know, like thinking that's so fucked up. They just locked all of the poorer people below deck because they thought that they were expendable. So like, and I've talked about on the show, I've gleaned a lot of my own personal politics through film. So this, I mean, that was definitely like a, a, a radicalizing moment. I definitely didn't develop any sort of like coherent class politics until much later in my life. But yeah. I mean, that was on my rewatch. That was kind of like my big takeaway. The big takeaway is like, what is happening on the Titanic is what is happening today. It is happening mm -hmm. today. It's happening all mm -hmm. over the world, which is that like class will get you killed depending on which class you are in. And depending on who is pulling the strings, your class position can sometimes be a death sentence. And we're seeing this play out with climate change. Mm -hmm. We know that the global South is and will continue to suffer the worst through the adverse effects of climate change, while the global North, you know, is like, oh, I got to pay more money for air conditioning. So mm -hmm. uh, this this movie is like a real parable for, I think, class antagonisms and class distinctions and how class can yeah. ultimately get you killed mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i think that it's largely about like what does class makeup what does the class composition of our society look like when that society meets a disaster what mm -hmm. happens when you fucking hit that iceberg and things start going awry um you know who who is sacrificed first who is you know used as like the labor to protect the the elite, you know, um, and and then they end up dying too, sacrificing themselves. I mean, I'm glad that you brought up that scene just right off the bat with locking those gates because that thinking about what you're saying, Rivka, about just that innate sense of fairness that you have as a child, seeing that, I mean, I, I immediately, when you said that, thought of that scene and that was one of the things that struck me the most of like, this is so clearly wrong. And, and how could anyone in, how could any grown up in the world ever think that this is an okay thing to do and apparently that it truly did happen on the titanic they did lock those gates lock the the lower classes below deck for like 20 minutes while it was sinking until they realized that they were definitely going down and then they opened it up again and let people out which is insane i mean and another thing to to like point out here is like the first class passengers were situated were positioned right next to um, the the lifeboats, so they could just very easily step out of their beautiful, lush, you know, accommodations, and then into a a beautifully prepared lifeboat, you know, mm -hmm. while these other people are being locked below deck, and like guns are going off, people are it it's getting insane. If you look at just like the physical nature of the ship, the the class breakdown of the ship, the the ship is not. A metaphor for class the ship is a physical manifestation of class yes. Yes. it is just like marx would say like this is if you if you want to give a materialist reading of this movie the ship is the class disparity within our society and all of the all of the social relations that you see play out are all stemming from those class relations every single word that comes out of the character's mouths from the moment that you see Rose and she's like, oh, you know, it's it's not really that big. I'm not that impressed by the ship. And um, <laughs> every single step of, of the way you hear classes articulated in every word of the characters. Yeah. And then it's they're wild. checking all of the lower class passengers for pests and for lice. Lice. Yeah. 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 That that first scene where you see the like 
really, really rich people being, you know, led to the to the ship, having all of their luggage carried for them onto the ship, while the lower classes are literally having to be inspected for lice in a very like dehumanizing way. That I mean, really set the set the stage for everything that follows. Yeah, I'm so happy we're starting here about like the need and importance of having not only like the physical structure of class on this ship, but also the story that comes with it. And I think just as I'm thinking about how vital it is to have this something this simple to be like, okay, we're all on the Titanic because to have this analogy when you're talking to people, I've been spending my um, the week working with science students part of what I do is like part of my work and they have these really complex topics and part of what I do is like come in and be like what is the story that you can connect it so that I can understand and like get into the complexities (laughs) of your research Mm -hmm. and like this is a great analogy that we all have that we can use at all times now because we as we've discussed and we'll get further into we are on the Titanic right freaking now and part (laughs) of your class consciousness can be like look around what class am I on I think what's really interesting and I'm thinking about when this came out is like part of being American and inheriting this capitalist system is having a lot of the mythology that we are classless, that there's this myth of upward mobility, that we um, somehow are different than what was on the Titanic, that that was a European ideology that it's their class systems there were a lot clearer and I'm just and I and I'm thinking about like this American exceptionalism and this disassociation from class and even the storytelling is like Titanic was such an American Hollywood film even in watching it how easy it would have been to like not think of ourselves as Americans as being on the boat like even the American characters are sort of it feels like in a class system that doesn't really have a lot to do with America and they're actually like heading mm. towards this American mm. soil. There's this sort of still inside of it, this myth that like, but that's not what the the dream of the U.S. had, like the American promise has to offer is that you can actually move out of your class, is that there's like, there's elevators between the floors. And so I'm just like thinking about when you ask for those concrete visualization of class where would that set in America and where do we all sit now? I'm just always fascinated by how much of an illusion that still is here. We all think we're first class passengers, you know, because yeah. we have an iPhone. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, this is really interesting in relation to the movie because, you know, and in relation to the history of the Titanic, this the ship was supposed to be like a kind of upper class experience for everyone, including the lower classes. They had like warm water, which they wouldn't even have even have at home. They had like, you know, personal beds, personal spaces and everything that it was actually very deluxe for the lower classes. So you see Jack like yelling from the the front of the ship, I'm the king of the world. (laughs) You know, Mm. these even these lower class folks on the ship could feel a little bit of that um, upper class life. And they they could kind of play act as if they were part of that. And you see Jack and Rose doing that throughout the film, like when he pretends like he's going to take her when they're in the like the carriage where they end up fucking. And, and he's like, oh, where where, do, where are we going to go, miss? And, uh, you know, a few other times and she pays him to paint to you know draw her You know, in these moments. They're playing their class differences. I, I just think that stuff is so, so fascinating. <laughs> 
I'm I'm glad you brought that up that that play acting part because I actually have this clip of Dra- when Jack gets all gussied up at dinner. So if you haven't rewatched this movie in a while, the, the only reason that Jack gets uh, hooked up with Rose is because she's standing at the front of the ship. She like might be jumping off, and he helps her, talks her down, saves her. So he kind of gets he gets like kind of ingratiated in with the upper class folks, although they obviously don't really give a shit about him. But they invite him to dinner one night, and Kathy Bates is really nice and is like, "You can't wear that shit you're wearing," <laughs> and she gives him a tuxedo. So you're going into the snake pit. You're going <laughs> into the snake pit. Yeah. Again, the American character suggesting that there is this idea of upward mobility that you can rise <laughs> through the ranks. And uh-huh. yeah, and another brilliant touch that they they lay out really clear that Kathy Bates is new money, and most uh-huh. of these passengers uh-huh. are old money. So there's all so there's even fucking class disparities even within the upper class. Um, totally. Yeah, and and as they're entering, she says to Jack, uh, you know, all these people love is money, so just act like you old own a gold mine, and they're you know they'll eat up anything you say. And where exactly do you live, Mr. Dawson? Well, right now, my address is the RMS Titanic. After that, I'm on God's good humor. And how is it you have means to travel? I work my way from place to place. You know, tramp steamers and such. But I won my ticket on Titanic here at a lucky-handed poker. A very lucky hand. Mm. All life is a game of luck. Mm. A real man makes his own luck, Archie. Right, Dawson? Hmm. And you find that sort of rootless existence appealing, do you? Well, yes, ma'am, I do. I mean, got everything I need right here with me. Got air in my lungs and a few blank sheets of paper. I mean, I love waking up in the morning not knowing what's going to happen or who I'm going to meet, where I'm going to wind up. Just the other night, I was sleeping under a bridge, and now here I am on the grandest ship in the world having champagne with you fine people. (laughs) I'll take some of that. <laughs> yeah. I also love that little moment in there when oh, the yeah. one rich guy is like, "Life is all luck," and the other, <laughs> and then the other rich guy is like, a "Real man makes his own luck," which is a constant refrain you hear from people who are born into wealth or <laughs> or born white or born with any sort of uh, advantage in the way that our uh, society is organized. Is yeah, it has nothing to do with the fact that I won the genetic lottery. It's all because I worked <laughs> really hard at Daddy's company. Exactly. And like Cal Hockley, the, you know, Rose's, she's betrothed to this guy. You know, he he's the one who says that line that we make our own luck. But he is literally the son of a, a Pittsburgh steel tycoon and he is inheriting all of his wealth. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he is not a self-made man in any way, shape or form. So the fact that these words are coming from him, it's like kind of making fun of him. And like the the fact that Rose's mother, Ruth, brings up like how how is life down in the steering how how is it you know in the lower classes what's it like down there she's basically like because he's dressed up like he belongs Mm -hmm. she's revealing to everyone that he's a lower classman and then he's like oh it's really nice hardly any rats and that line (laughs) he's saying you're the fucking rat here you are ratting me out in front of all these people (laughs) which Mm she's exactly doing i mean these people invite him into this this dinner party so that they could essentially make fun of him. It's one of those like rich men inviting a poor person for their enter- entertainment and then mocking them. You know? And then he and then he succeeds, though. I don't know. Maybe it's because now I'm stuck on this frame, but I am like, oh, he's our American hero. He's like our 
And I was uh-huh. buying uh-huh. into it, y'all, as I mentioned. <laughs> Head of the fan club. So maybe I'm seeing something <laughs> with fresh eyes. But I do. It is interesting that I'm kind of like buying into his like, if if anyone can do, like he can do it. There is a piece of it that's like telling us this fictional, this romantic story that he is a little, there's something inherently a little bit better about um, Jack. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that he will rise above and that is a little bit of our American <laughs> tale. Like one can, it does uh-huh. take one person to rise above and he is the one who's always, you know, even later as we journey through the ship as the, uh, as we hit the iceberg and we're two, and we have like a two hour <laughs> like ship coming apart. He is the yeah. one who kind of forges ahead when no one else can get through the barriers and he can break down barriers other people can. There is a little bit of about like he can pull up his bootstraps when other people can't. Mm-hmm. Mythology. I mean, oh, it's so painful to say, but it's true. <laughs> Definitely that that myth of upward mobility. Um, but I think in the film, you know, James Cameron, he's really kind of playing with, you know, are are we stuck within our classes? In some ways, yes, we absolutely are in a totally material way. But, you know, when when Jack first sees Rose and he's gazing at her and the Irishman tells him, you know, you're more likely to have angels fly out of your ass than get with the likes of her. <laughs> um, you know, that that totally unbridgeable class gap. But then he actually does it. I mean, they she falls in love with him. You know, there that human element is mm-hmm. beyond class. And so he does, in a way, transcend class, but he doesn't do it by becoming upper class, you know? <laughs> Yeah. He does it through through love, through this relationship, through falling in love with this Pheromones, person. baby. Um, Two days. <laughs> Which is why why you even went and saw the film to begin with. <laughs> oh, if only I knew what Leonardo DiCaprio's pheromones were like, I would have screamed. Although I do think it's important to point out, Rivka and I actually watched this movie together. This yes. is, we, we don't ever watch the nice. movies together, but we were like, you know, it's Titanic. It's three and a half hours long. Let's We can watch it together. And you did <laughs> oh, recognize no. that on this watch. This was existential. You were more into Bill Paxton than Leonardo DiCaprio on this watch. Oh, shook oh, at how hot cool. Bill Paxton was. <laughs> oh, damn. Yeah, I, I mean, mean those, I, those, it's appropriate. Those I'm highlights, like, I have that, that earring. Oh, my God. The watch. I have been having dreams of Bill Paxton since. And I got to say, like, this is appropriate. Like, I don't think I should still be pining. Leonardo DiCaprio is a child in this movie. So I think it is appropriate that I am no longer attracted to him and it's just good i'm aging but i just hadn't watched it It in that and yeah i was was like all about brock love (laughs) it actually now that we're on the on the topic of brock brock love it can we talk about the the framing of this because we're following so the film follows and we start off by actually seeing like which was part of what was so epic seeing real underwater footage of the titanic that James Cameron, I can't remember how many dives James Cameron has. He's got a condo that down there. <laughs> but so Brock is this really obsessed sort of, he's an obsessive filmmaker, but he's going, he's looking for, they really, it's, he's driven by wanting to find this diamond, the heart of the ocean. By money, yeah. He's driven by money. He's the ultimate, yeah, he's, mm-hmm. I guess, the ultimate capitalist. 
wants and so in pursuit of this diamond they find when they're underwater they find a the sketch of rose which is eventually which by the way james cameron sketched he did all of the sketches in, it's pretty impressive. It's really impressive. And I yeah. and I believe it's actually his hand sketching Rose. Really hope he didn't make Kate Winslet lay there while he drew that. I that was Oh yeah, that is creepy now that yeah. I think about that. <laughs> yeah, so they find this picture of Rose and this and they this woman who's Rose, who we find out is 101, sees it. She's like in Santa Fe. I feel like it was someplace in I loved her apartment wherever it was. Loved her whole vibe. <laughs> uh, like that's kind of Goals. Throwing pottery and everything. Yeah, and... throwing pottery. It's like, <laughs> oh, I love that aesthetic. And sees it on TV. And then they fly her out. She's 101. They're like, get her ass out of here. Get her, get her ass out of here. Get her on a helicopter. Get her on this boat. Never mind. Like, if this is really the person, could you imagine the residual trauma? Like, has yeah. she been on a boat yeah. since the Titanic? Like, Wow to the titanic yeah <laughs> and Crazy. so they get her there and then so it all wraps and so she tells the whole story as we mentioned in the synopsis it wraps up and it's revealed in this in the one ending that actually all along she has had the diamond mm -hmm. because because yeah. cal had put the jacket on her and didn't realize that the heart of the diamond was in the jacket so she has it mm -hmm. and she has held on to it this means her whole life never this is so much wealth. Yeah. Like so much this could feed so many people. Mm -hmm. And my my girl <laughs> has hoarded this wealth. <laughs> has like I'm sorry, I'm coming for Rose. Like she has <laughs> held on to this and I understand there's an argument to be like I didn't want his money, he was an abuser. All good, sell it. Like what? Yeah. You don't want to be associated? Yeah. Hand it off. No. Why? Because she wanted on this moment to go off near tiptoe out in the middle of the ocean and go, and it ends with yeah. her throwing it back. I said, are you kidding me? Now, there I mean, is an alternate ending, Erica. Did you know this? What? I did not know. <laughs> there is an alternate ending. Not It's absurd. Not like the Titanic, not like historically, like, haha, yeah, does they yeah. never hit the iceberg. It's just this <laughs> last moment where... Rose is about to throw this all of this money thousands of like lives could live off of this millions of lives could live off this diamond thrown into the ocean and um Hockley and her sees her and is like run Bill Paxton and it's like runs up and is like no yeah it's it's like it's basically like an action movie like final scene where he's like don't do it he's like Rose don't do it <laughs> Don't throw it in there. And she was like, I have to. I have to get rid of it. And he's like, let me just let me just hold it once. I've always just wanted to hold it. And then so, that's it. And then he and then he holds it for a second and then she throws it in. And uh, then goes down and gets it. <laughs> no, and yeah, then no. he does the most wild laugh. It almost ruined my Bill Paxton, like my dreams <laughs> of Bill Paxton. For he does this laugh to the ceiling where he just throws his head back and it's a full body laugh. It's a really dumb ending. I'm, it's, it's, very, it's obvious why they did not choose it. It's corny yeah. as hell. Watching the movie again and seeing her throw that diamond into the ocean that could feed thousands of people, I definitely had the same reaction. Um, <laughs> I, I had two reactions. One is this is like a supremely anti-capitalist move. You are throwing money away. You know, <laughs> you are throwing it literally into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, how callous and 
out of touch with reality that you could treat wealth that way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I could probably a lot of my dissertation was about um, uh, George Bataille, who is a French philosopher who wrote a lot about um, kind of in response to Marx um, and who who really thought that Marx emphasized production too much and that he should really have emphasized more consumption um, and the need to fulfill needs <laughs> and that mm. building a society around productivity is not necessarily what we want. We want a, a society that's built around everyone being able to eat, you know? So yeah. I love, uh, and he's all about waste um, and, you know, the ways that we can remedy capitalist excesses through waste, through festivals, through orgies, through these crazy outpourings of wealth. And so I was like, I'm of two minds about the the ending scene. I don't quite know what to do with it. <laughs> you know, now that we're talking about Rose, the character, this brings up the other kind of big question that I had in rewatching this movie at this point in my life is, like, is Rose just sort of cosplaying as a lower class person? Like, mm. is this a real, is this a real choice that she is considering? Or is this just like, basically like a fun experience for her because hmm. in rewatching it, I was like, had the ship not hit this iceberg and had this like tragedy not befallen them. The only reason she goes back on the ship is because Jack is like locked up and will die. So had yeah. the stakes not been raised to that point, I'm curious, does Rose choose to go with Jack or does she continue her, her, her life within the aristocracy? Obviously, Rose is under a lot of pressure from her mother and like her own class position is is in danger. But I don't know. There's some, something that kind of rubbed me the wrong way this this go around where I was like, uh, this is this is just like sport for her. This is just like an amusement. This is just like something she gets to dip in on and be like, oh, cool. There's a fun poor people party down in steerage. Everyone's dancing. <laughs> How fun. I, I had a very different reading. So basically, because the movie starts out you see how absolutely miserable she is, how absolutely mm. discontent she is living within the aristocracy. She imagines her life as an endless stream of parties and balls and things that are just people acting their roles within the upper classes. I think she's seeing that this is all a performance. Class is a performance. And mm. she doesn't want to do that performance anymore. She's sick of it. And she feels trapped within that performance. She has to you know, go and, and act nice and act like, you know, have these fancy conversations all the time. But she she really like, and that's, I think, why you see them play acting the upper class roles versus lower class roles, her and Jack. I mean, she's she's becoming aware that this is this is all put on, you know, <laughs> these are all errors that these rich, wealthy people put on to, you know, define themselves. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want anything to do with that. I mean, she learns to spit with Jack, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, she, um, at the end, she even, like, turns away from Cal, who's coming to find her. He, she could have had a very, very rich life going forward, but she looks away from him. He never finds her. He takes Jack, She takes Jack's name, Dawson. So she's leaving the ship with no family, with no wealth, with no connection. She's lost Jack even. So she's she's leaving with nothing and going off into the world to build herself. And I think that her character I think is a very radical one. And if you if you if you identify with her character, you start identifying with 
disdain for the upper classes, with disdain for all of these airs that they're putting on and, um, you know, a desire to to actually live and to feel real relationships and to dance to go <laughs> with the lower classes and all that Irish music. She's dancing around, standing on the, her tippy toes and everything, having a blast. I mean, she's she really reveals the way that w the wealthy classes, the aristocracy are lacking some fundamental enjoyment in life. And Their I humanity. think humanity. And fundamental humanity and yeah yeah uh, and enjoyment uh, being able to experience what it means to be human <laughs> yeah. so i think jack helps her get in touch with that and frees her from the performance that is class i think <laughs> i love that okay. yeah i think i, I love, actually yeah, I felt like even though i came down hard on on old rose <laughs> on elder rose <laughs> with hoarding the wealth i i also felt like wow this is really radical, especially, you know, in the context of the conversation around Barbie. I was like, this is a much more radical feminist film than freaking Barbie. And this was 97 because there's an inter there's a real conversation about the intersection of class and what mm -hmm. it means mm -hmm. to have to. Yeah, that that they're performing class, that they're performing the performance of being a woman is totally wrapped up and tied up in this performance mm -hmm. of class. I think the most interesting character, and I thought actually the best performance was Frances Fisher, who plays the mother Ruth. Yeah. And they have that scene where she's tying her, you know, where she's explaining to her. This is not a game. Our situation is precarious. You know the money's gone. Of course I know it's gone. You remind me every day. Your father left us nothing but a legacy of bad debts hidden by a good name. That name is the only card we have to play. I don't understand you. It is a fine match with Hockley. It will ensure our survival. How can you put this on my shoulders? Why are you being so selfish? I'm being selfish. Do you want to see me working as a seamstress? Is that what you want? See our fine things sold at auction. Our memories scattered to the winds. It's so unfair. Of course it's unfair. We're women. Our choices are never easy. <laughs> yeah oh, so good i mean she plays it so well so i don't think the writing is the most helpful there but i think we know where it you know when the, it, it is a matter of survival and then to say it's a matter of survival and our fine things sold we kind of can read into the subtext i think there's an op there was an opportunity there to really explore like no it really would have been a matter of like they are just surviving. They don't own anything. As a woman, you don't own anything. You're just making decisions about the best move you can make as a piece in this in the game. You are only ever going to be a pawn piece. And I think that's that was like clear in that scene. I, it's fresh. I wish there was more nuance and complexity in like the relationship between the two of them. So it wasn't just like, oh, mom, you're trying to control like, you know, that she could have recognized. Mm -hmm. There was just would have <laughs> yeah. been a little more love, I think. You see it when 
Rose doesn't come with her mother into the lifeboat and the pain yeah, on her yeah. mother's face in that moment. You just – that love was there. I wish there was like a little bit more of their relation – that in their relationship throughout. It would have mm-hmm. been just richer and you would have felt the complexity of that for Rose. But she's yeah. young, you know? She's a teen – like we forget they're so young that – Mm-hmm. And maybe even in this conversation, I'm like, you know what? Because I was like, okay, y'all, two days. I get it. I get it. I would have married someone at that age, like in two days. It's craziness. But maybe it's not. Maybe we give Jack a little too much. Maybe it's not about Jack at all. And she is just truly desperate. Well, she is. She like, they meet because she's going to freaking jump off the boat. Yeah. I mean, I I think that watching this again, it really, one of the main messages that really was driven home for me was that relationships under capitalism are so determined by class. All of our choices that we make even to get into different relationships are colored by, okay, what's my, do I have enough money? Does that person have enough money? Should I team up with this person where I can live a better life? You know, the pressure from the mother to do just that thing. I mean, I think it showed the way that capitalism kind of uh, infiltrates and uh, dictates all of our relationships. Um, our romantic relationships, our you know, our marriage relationships. So, yeah, and and how how do you break out of that? It, it feels so so ingrained that it's so difficult to break out of. I think the movie did a good job of depicting that. Great job of depicting that. And I think that's such an important point because I think so many people, especially today, when when class politics has been basically erased from like the American vernacular and the way that we talk about issues in this country that like people don't understand why, you know, like, I I don't know. I, I used to, I wait, I waited tables for fucking ever for like Mm -hmm. almost 20 years. And before I like developed class politics, sometimes I would walk away from a table and be like, why do I feel like fucking shit after the way that the table talked to me? Like, yeah. why do, like, why do I feel less than? Why do I feel yeah. like these people are more important? Why do I actually, even though they just made me feel bad, I actually want their validation. And mm-hmm. when you don't have the the language, the understanding of how these, how class is a social relation, like mm-hmm. above all, it's a, it and it, it comes along with a lot of material trappings and a lot of material realities for what your class can entail. But like. At its core, it is a social relation. So I think, I think seeing something like this and understanding the way that, just on a social level, the way that class can make people feel, I think is incredibly valuable and super important mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people are like, why do I feel so bad about myself all the time? It's like, it's not yeah. your fault. It is the fault of this system. Our system is literally designed so that you have, you know, it, in the past it worked so that pe- there was a breadwinner, there was a woman at home, who's doing all the unpaid labor underpinning the the work of the man and that's how you operate and that is baked into our capitalist system you know mm-hmm. and this yeah this movie it just like shoves it in your face like this is a trap capitalism is trapping you within these different relationships you know and like jack says you're going to die if you don't get out of this like this is it's it really does imprison people um, you know, and, and then, but Rose also says, like, you know, poor little rich girl, like, oh, what does she know about misery? You know, in a way, it's weird to think of these people that are rich being trapped within these relationships and it being bad for them. But, but yeah, it doesn't matter if you're upper class or lower class; it is mm-hmm. a trap. <laughs> and one thing, one thing I noticed in this movie, and I think, which I think is kind of dangerous in stories about class that don't have like a 
a more nuanced or complex material materialist reading of class is mm -hmm. this idea that like, you know what, if you're poor, it's easier to be happy. Like it's easier to be happy if you're poor. And yeah. like we see yeah. this in the way that like joy mm -hmm. is portrayed in the in in the steerage section. Obviously, these rich people aren't quote unquote happy. They're like all miserable. It's something we see here. It's something where a story like, you know, A Christmas Carol also does this, where it's just like, you know, Bob Cratchit and his family, they're poor as hell, but like they got love, you know? That's all they need. That's all they need is love. And I <laughs> they think they don't need this diamond thrown uh -huh. in the ocean. Boop. <laughs> yeah. And while that narrative is nice and it does draw the distinction between how wealthy people or poor people derive happiness from their lives it also kind of like obscures the fact that like yo you could have love and also food like you yeah. can have like you could have love yeah. and also health care so like yep. i just wanted to point that out because i do think yeah. like i do think drawing that 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 like kind of binary choice between classes especially in broad stories like this can be a little dangerous so yeah, yeah. That's i think that's a great yeah. point i think actually mm -hmm. yeah this film does a lot of that. I wanted to pull us out and just talk a little bit about the role of capitalism in the in the moment, in the actual ship's creation, and then the iceberg moment. I want to give a shout out also. Frank yeah. and I watched this film with our one of our really one of our best friends, Chase. And Chase loves the Titanic and it was just Titanic aficionado <laughs> so many but it was really great to watch it through that lens to be continually mm -hmm. reminded and actually in interviews with James Cameron he he does say which I appreciate you have to always remember this is not just a movie and while Jack Jack and Rose were not real people FYI in case yeah. anyone didn't know that mm -hmm. they are fictional characters 2224 passengers and crew aboard and more mm -hmm. than 1500 who lost their lives only 710 people survived the disaster, many of whom were women and children from first class due to the women and children first policy. And of course, there were not enough lifeboats, as we saw. They weren't yeah. fully packed. A lot of catastrophic things that happened once they found out that they hit the iceberg. But even before that, the way we know capitalism works is it puts profit before every human life. And so the initiative here for profit was that the White Star Line they had the incentive to we see that the the titanic's being moved by like the steam right so you see everyone below deck who are which is fantastic to see all the fire and actually literally how hot and like just that is the definition of labor just throwing yeah, that coal totally. and getting that steam going there's a moment in the film where they say you know we don't need to go full steam ahead we're making great time but the incentive mm -hmm. for profit and fame is to know we have to we have to break records we have to get there much faster if they had not had that incentive it's very likely they wouldn't have been going that quickly and this would not have happened so yeah. that yeah. motive for profit and fame has everything to do with this tragedy and hubris like the hubris of the rich like th uh, this is what, this is one of the greatest, like, oops, actually, rich people. Capitalism exactly. is unsinkable. We're, what are you talking about? We're not in late-stage capitalism. Everything is just fine. 
that is so important to point out just how the hubris led to this disaster to begin with. I mean, even they designed it so that they could have enough lifeboats on board, but then they decided to leave half of them out because they didn't want the deck to look cluttered. <laughs> just the aesthetics mm. of like wanting a pristine, beautiful ship for, you know, that won't have any eyesores for these wealthy passengers, some of whom are paying like $120,000 for their tickets, you know? <laughs> Like almost as much as people pay to go visit the Titanic on the Titan submersible. <laughs> yes. Ooh, speaking of hubris. Speaking yeah, of hubris, yeah. there uh -huh. was a lot. And actually, James Cameron made this point in an interview that he did um, when they really? asked him about the submersible. And he pointed out like there was a, there's a deep comparison in the tragedy of this hubris of someone who's trying to be yeah. um, a Titan in industry and make shortcuts because there were so many, there were a lot of shortcuts made uh, so that this could be regulated faster to go down. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure people yeah. have already seen there were, you know, he, Stockton Rush, who created the submersible and was the CEO of Ocean Gate. <laughs> Ocean Gate, yes. Okay. Ocean Gate. It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> was um, actually very much like Bill Paxton's character in the sense of just like that huge, that like, mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, no, I'm not making that. I'm not letting Bill go down like that. I can't. I can't. <laughs> He's more of like the the Bruce Ismay character. Yes, yes. Totally. Bruce Ismay played by Jonathan Hyde uh, in the movie, who people will also remember as the bad guy from Jumanji. And he's the one who pressures the captain to go faster, break these records. So Stockton Rush, I guess, would be comparable to the Bruce Ismay character who was the CEO of, well, not, they wouldn't call him a CEO at the time, would they? Owner, a chairman, and managing director of the White Star Line. Well, briefly, he grew up working class. So he he grew up working class, but then had this was sent to a boarding school. And so it's it is interesting his relationship to his father because then when he returned from boarding school, he felt like he wasn't actually accepted by either class. Which I don't hmm, know. You know, there, there's many different. In my deep dive, people are very passionate about his biography. But as you see in the movie, he ultimately. Just like, as mm -hmm. we know, is like the wealthy folk decide we're going to stay on the ship and go down with it. Ismay does not. Ismay decides to get on one of the boats and get out of there and is forever yeah. throughout the rest of his life taunted. I don't shamed. know. Taunted. Shamed yeah. is the right word. Shamed for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As, you know, probably he should be. But I just thought that was interesting yeah. that like but part of the analysis was that he didn't feel like he ever really fit in with that class or this class. It's fucking shameful, mm -hmm. but interesting. And so that is like, very, very you know, the hubris, I guess the tie there to Stockton Rush is the hubris uh -huh. of like putting together this submersible, putting profit before people thinking like, like he was like, he, you see in interviews, he he really loves it. He's like, I, yeah, this looks like a Game Boy controller. That's because it is. I mean, so one of the first lines and watching this again after watching the Titan submersible disaster unfold, th these first lines from Brock really struck me hard. He says, pressure outside is three and a half tons per square inch. These windows are nine inches thick. If they go, it's sayonara in two microseconds. That is exactly what happened to the people on the Titan submersible. And they built that thing with components, off-the-shelf components from, like, Canoe World. Literally buying pieces from Canoe World. Things that God. broke, like, and were zip-tied back together at different points. <laughs> the, the hubris there. To have watched the film Titanic, seen this scene then wanted to go and visit and recreate basically the dive down to the Titanic without the safety precautions that, that James Cameron took 
to go down there, you know, and then mocking safety precautions, saying that, you know, if you're too concerned about, you know, safety, don't get out of bed in the morning, you know, literally. <laughs> but that's but that's lauded, you know, and, and if they hadn't passed away, that was like that is what is considered in under capitalism, like good, great behavior. You are an outlier. You are yeah. finding ways to make fast profit and mm -hmm. get rich people to have an adventure of a lifetime and maybe some people who aren't rich who want to mortgage their homes. Now that we're talking, I think Jeff Bezos should do a few more Blue Origin space trips. <laughs> like, well, let's, but like, let's do them fast. You know, like we don't have time for the, you know, like the back, like just safety. go back to back to, yeah, the safety. Let's yeah. just go back to back to back. Get all your friends, get all your rich friends. Let's like do some more space trips. Hey, Jeff, if you make it back really fast, you win. Yeah. yeah, we should all just get on Twitter and start dare, like just being like, hey, hey, Jeff, I bet you can't make it up and back in this time. I bet you can't. I dare you. I bet you can't do it. That shit uh, would work on Elon for sure. That would absolutely work on Elon. You know, although yeah. the one the one redeeming thing I will say about some of these rich guys in the film Titanic and in the real Titanic is that like even though they were upper class, those men were like, I'm fucking dying today. Like, I'm just like I'm, Guggenheim. Yeah, like Guggenheim and I think John Astor as well. Like they were like, no matter, they're, you know, some of the richest people on the earth. And they were like, I'm fucking going down today because it's yeah. more important to save the women and the children. But you, sir, please bring me my cocktail while I do. <laughs> so yeah. The, you gotta be comfortable. I, I loved learning about Guggenheim when the ship is going down. They suit him up with a life vest. He takes that off. He and his assistant go back and put on their tuxedos saying that they're ready to go down the ship, which they really did in real life, and then proceed to help the women and children. But the part about that that sticks with me is like he forced his assistant to go down with the ship. He fucking forced his assistant oh. to be a hero with him mm -hmm. like his worker, his laborer went down with him. And there were almost as many crew members that died as third class passengers. Mm. There were mm. like 700 crew members died on the Titanic. So wow. if you are a worker, not just a poor person, but someone working there, you're probably there at, in the last moment saying, I have to do everything I can to help these people. And then you're stuck on the ship and then you're sucked down into the depths of the ocean. You know? mm. That class hard, disparity Erica, is still there. I, I'm even yeah. with his I know story. the people I've been an assistant to, and I'm like, no doubt. And they'll be like, this is your, <laughs> this is your greatest honor. Well, the time <laughs> no. has come for us. You know, when you're like, it's so oh, all of a sudden it's we? Like, all of a sudden yeah. it's <laughs> One small thing I wanted to shout out was just because it did, I did find, there was one moment when they're going through their, there's a scene and you see one family of color briefly. And I thought it was interesting that they made that choice, but it wasn't addressed anywhere else. And so I was curious. And so I started to, I was like, what was the racial makeup of mm -hmm. the passengers on the Titanic? And I just found awesome. this story. It was part of this article, part of the research of this woman, Kelly Carter Jackson, who is a professor of humanities of Africana studies at Wesley. And this is about Joseph LaRoche, who was the only um, black passenger on the Titanic, a black Haitian man. They were second-class passengers. They were actually supposed to be first-class passengers on another ship and traded because they wanted their kids to not have to be in the nursery. I guess it was maybe, as you were mentioning, better a difference on the Titanic. Traveling with 
his wife, who was a white French woman who was pregnant with their third child, and his wife and two kids do survive. He does not survive. But I thought this was an interesting quote from the article. Is it possible that the Titanic has become symbolic of white supremacy? And therefore, its sinking has devastated people because it has shown that whiteness is fallible. That if something like this ship could sink, then what does that say about white supremacy? Maybe we are not as supreme as we think we are. And I was like, oh, shit, that's fucking fire. Yeah. Yeah, So I would like to see Titanic with um, Joseph, who was also Haitian, an engineer, spoke three languages. um, And also part of the reason that they were immigrating was because they were going back, I think eventually headed back to Haiti because of racism that they faced in France. So just like a much, so Mm. many, so, so much in that one story. There was another story that the My Favorite Murder podcast covered about a a worker on the Titanic who just is, is basically a hero. And the whole time that the Titanic is sinking, he's going between like helping people onto the rafts and going down taking swigs out of his flask while the water is rising up around his ankles, going back up to help people go down, take more swigs. Like, and he survived, you know, in the water, which almost no one did, you know, was this, was this the, the baker? And I asked that because our dear friend Chase told us about, I think this baker on the Titanic who was so drunk when he went into the water that he literally was able to survive because he had so much alcohol in his bloodstream. I think that's exactly it. I think that's the exact wow. one. <laughs> but it was something like, you know, out of everyone that went into the water, I think they only pulled, and this number probably isn't accurate, but something like seven people. I think that, yeah, like, six or seven. Six or seven that, that, that survived from going into the water. And yeah. one of them was that drunk ass baker so i guess (laughs) and the other was rose no just kidding she was not (laughs) yeah oh i guess one final thing we do have to hit because it's Uh just important there is the debate of course as to whether jack could have survived on that door with rose and i didn't realize but this debate was 25 years later haunted james cameron so much that they do on like i think it's like a nat geo thing they go with um, like Mythbusters or something. <laughs> like, they like he's like like so scientific. But I watched the whole thing and I have to I just have to share this because it did give me a lot of peace. Like I feel like there's just something off my checklist mm. I don't ever have to think about again. <laughs> they take these two stunt actors, put them to levels of like hypothermia, and like get the door and try all these different ways to try and like save them both. And y'all, it can't be done. It cannot be Aww. done. Wow. Aww. So lay it to rest. There can only be one. There can only be one, but when the boat shows up and the yes. the lifeboat shows up, she's just like, bye, Jack. And she's just like, even though he still doesn't look totally frozen, she just like releases him into the water. I'm like, why didn't you pull him into the fucking boat? Why did you try be to unconscious. revive him? I, yeah. I, I had that same thought. I was like, I, doesn't, it doesn't matter if there was room for both of them. The lifeboat was there. And she was like... Yeah. I'm sorry, I have to let go. Bye. Like, bye, he yeah. could have yeah. <laughs> just been asleep. He could have just been unconscious. Sorry, bye. You know, now that we're talking, I'm kind of like, good for her. It was like two <laughs> days. Honestly, after two days of that much trauma, I might be like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, so Erica, this is the point in the episode where we like to give out awards for this movie. Um, the first award is called A Point with a View, and this goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. Totally no, no contest. It's Jack. Yeah. Seems clear to me. He's very class conscious. He's very aware of his standing, his rank. When uh, the Irish 
person, Tommy, says something about how, oh, typical, the the upper class people bring their dogs down here to shit in the lower class deck. Um, he's He says something about like, uh, well, you know, it reminds us of our rank. You know, we know wh- where we are, basically. Mm. He's he's very, very conscious of of class and of where he stands in society and how class is harming Rose even, you know? Yeah. <laughs> even, like, not just how it's harming him as someone who is poor and who has had to, like, work on a squid boat and do sketches for a living and stuff and travel all, all around, like... He he sees the ways that class hurts even the rich. <laughs> so I feel like his viewpoint mm. is just the best. <laughs> that feels right. I but that although I do just want to give a like a like a second place award for the unsinkable Molly Brown played oh, by yeah. Kathy Bates. Totally. Totally. She is technically upper class, but she's new money and she she, she fucking hates those other rich ladies. She doesn't <laughs> give a shit about them. And she helps out Jack. She gets him dressed up. She explains mm-hmm. to him, like, what kind of literal class conflict he's about to enter into. She supports mm-hmm. him. And then she's one of the only people on the lifeboats who's like, we got to go back. What is this? This is co- this is absolutely insane. We have to go back for these people. And, you know, the mm. the one guy on her boat is like, I'll fucking drown you if you don't shut up. So, yeah. you know. And that happened in real life, too. She was like, she almost fought the dude in real life telling really? people wow. that there's not enough people in our, our lifeboat. We need to go back. They're screaming over there. Like, I mean, I feel like I would have been in that position. I would have been screaming at the person like, we have to save those people. We can't just sit here. But yeah, great, great call. I didn't I didn't mm-hmm. think about that, but nailed it. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the most chilling things is how they talk about, and you hear a lot of the survivors talk about how loud it was and then how quiet it got. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine living with so that. So quickly. Um, all right. Yeah. So our next award is Despicable You. This goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. And honestly, it's going to be a, a crowded race on this one, I think. <laughs> really? Cal just seems like the worst. I mean, he's so the typical oh. villain mm-hmm. who's both yeah. the entitled spoiled brat kid that thinks that he's made his unluck even though he's inherited everything. Yeah, and and then is literally chasing them down, shooting at them at different points in the film. I mean, he's he's a total tyrant. He's abusive towards Rose. He uh, is a real just rich asshole. And then he uses that kid at the end to get on the yeah. lifeboat and uh, totally oh. lies and does yeah. not do his duty as a man and die, uh, but instead is a coward. And like Bruce's May is like, I want to get on this boat. Billy so, yeah. Zane having the most fun acting. Yeah, Billy Zane's really chewing the scenery in this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about Ismay? I know we talked about Ismay's complexities, but like ultimately, who has more blood on their hands? That's good point. Ooh, sure. Good yeah. fucking point. Yeah. I mean, his hubris is what kills everyone so i guess he's the bigger villain here yeah. <laughs> all right and our last award is called a star is scorned this goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about you know i i was really interested in um thomas andrews in this go around yeah. uh played by victor garber who was the actual architect of the titanic the guy who designed it and was on it and did go down with the ship because mm-hmm. Of Mm -hmm. all of the first-class passengers, he seemed to have the most, uh, other than Molly, had, like, the most humanity and vulnerability and, Mm -hmm. you know, goes at lengths to to help Rose a couple times throughout the film and is clearly just not one of these other, like, rich dudes. Um, 
and he's also like he's a like you know he's an engineer he knew how to build a ship so mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be interested in a thomas andrews movie i i love that james cameron cameron really based it on the real character who you you would see him in ireland while they were building the ship helping out the workers in the actual shipbuilding oh. yard alongside them and he he was actually like he showed up in and showed solidarity with working people in many different ways throughout his life so um you know his his legacy is definitely a very positive one even though he was one of these wealthier people i think probably what happened there really really tormented him i mean in the in the actual on the actual titanic this the scene where he like freezes up that actually happened he people just like came in and he was just completely like he couldn't move at all he was so struck by what was happening and i think like probably in his last minutes was completely tormented by the fact that he had a role to play in all of this you know i want to know i still want to know more about ruth dewitt and the mothers just like how that what does that mean that like you know that she has to go back to being a seamstress i feel like there's a lot to unpack there like the movie of Rose's mother after the Titanic, or, or mm-hmm. after after they're after they're they're saved from the Titanic, that would be interesting. Or yeah. before yeah. and after, like I feel like you can have like young Ruth and like how they get mm. to the Titanic, and then you're really like, Ugh. and then we really care for her and Rose's being such a little brat. You know, when I first started watching this film again um, to get ready for this, I you know I realized okay, I saw Francis Fisher, I was. I loved her role. And then later that night, I drove down to the Little Secret LA show where I was literally shoulder to shoulder with Francis Fisher yeah. that night, <laughs> so, who was there in the capacity of like uplifting the labor movement, the SAG after strike, and everything, um, you know, showing solidarity with Stephen Donziger and his environmental justice struggle and Chris Smalls and his labor struggle. Um, she is a real one. That woman is amazing. Fuck yeah. <laughs> she's a real one That's and I think awesome. it shows in her performance she's the, I mean, yeah. she's the best one in the movie I think I would also watch a series of movies about Brock Lovett treasure hunter <laughs> oh, you know just yeah. like you different know treasures R.I.P. though <laughs> yeah R.I.P. well this was such a pleasure but before we wrap up we do like to discuss with our guests how we as artists and people strive to practice our anti-capitalist values in our own lives. Um, I know that, you, as we've discussed, you have your podcast, but is there something that you want to share or practice that you have um, in your daily life? You know, so I recently did an episode about um, Food Not Bombs, and they're a group that I I first got involved with when I was like 16 years old, um, just trying to feed the homeless folks in my area. And they are such an important group. It especially during late stage capitalism when the class disparities are so extreme and there are so many people who are houseless, who are hungry, who who need some of that just basic, basic support. Like that that group is so important to support. So if anyone out there, you know, first go look up the story about um, Houston Food Not Bombs where they have received almost 50 tickets for feeding the homeless. Absolutely oh insane. God. You know, those people are heroes. But then also go look at what Food Not Bombs chapters are in your area and and please like show up if you can, bring food if you can, donate if you can. Um, I think that's just, it's going to be a cause that is growing in importance 
every single day. Um, so that's that's a really, um, you know, one that's really near and dear to my heart. You know, I also just, uh, I encourage folks also to go plug into the, the um, Stop Cop City campaign. Uh, mm -hmm. Right now, they're really, really trying to get Cop City on the ballot um, so that folks in Atlanta can actually vote on whether or not they want a huge over-militarized police training facility in their area, which will increase police violence. And they're looking for canvassers. They're looking for people to um, do phone banking. They're, they're looking for a lot of different help and donations. So if folks can help out with that, that would be huge. Yeah, I guess those are the main two right now that I think I really want folks to pay attention to. <laughs> and we'll make sure to link those in the show notes of this uh, episode. So you can check that out on your podcast player. Erica, uh, where can our audience find you and your work? Yeah, so... You know, you can find Cocktails and Capitalism on all major podcasting platforms, Spotify, Google, Apple. Um, and you can also find me on social media. Uh, I'm most active on Instagram at Cocktails and Capitalism or on Twitter, X, I guess, God, um, <laughs> where my handle is at Cocked Capitalism because I couldn't spell it all out. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> kind of awkward. Uh, yeah, I mean, those are the two main places I think that I'm most active. TikTok a little bit, but. Um, well, this was so much fun. This was such a pleasure. Yes. Thank you for your time. Um, it was so great getting to meet you finally. And uh, yeah. yeah, we'll 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 do this again soon. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I really thank hope you. so. I really like. I I loved meeting you both. Like this is so much fun. I think that as like a, a show to introduce people to anti-capitalist ideas, this is brilliant. And absolutely, you're filling a much needed space and something that, you know, even someone who has spent a lot of time learning about capitalism, it totally scratches that itch for me. So I love what you're doing and, <laughs> and great job over there. Cheers to you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so likewise. much. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying this show, please consider becoming a supporter. Again, you can find all of that information at mvcpod.com. For next week's movie, we'll be watching the 2017 Paul Schrader drama, First Reformed. Thanks, everyone. Bye.